0: Good evening, let's pray as we come to God's word together. Father, we need you. We need your help. Thank you for your words that you have given to us as a good gift. We ask, Lord, that the Holy Spirit might be at work through your words tonight. Be at work in our hearts to hear what you have to say to us and to put it into practice. Lord, we ask with empty, open hands. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We live in a spiritual age. Uh, Perhaps past generations were more rationalistic, approaching spirituality and religion. But in recent years, there's been a move towards spirituality. Mindfulness is encouraged widely these days as we've become more aware to a, a mental health epidemic that is going on. We are encouraged to take time away from our busy lives, our busy schedules, and to reflect, to look inward, to find some sort of peace. Now, I want to say tonight that that is a good thing to do. That is an encouraging thing to do to deal with the stresses and strains that life has thrown at us. But this doesn't solve all our problems. Even for a little while it will not sustain us. The Bible teaches us that rather than looking inward, we need to look outward. We need to look up in prayer as we speak not to ourselves but to the God of the universe. He is the one we are to look to. Now you don't have to be religious to to see or admit that there are benefits to prayer. But even those of us here tonight who uh, would call themselves Christians who know this God in heaven, we seem to struggle. You might be here tonight having seen some of the try-praying posters that are on buses and on banners around this city. And maybe that has enticed you to find out more about this God we pray to. But for those of us who have prayed in the past to this God and continue to pray, we struggle. Why is that? This week I I spoke to one of our members and, and ran this by them. I said that I'm going to be teaching on prayer this coming Sunday. What's your initial reaction to that? She said one phrase, guilt trip. Immediately a sense of dread and guilt thinking or knowing that she didn't pray enough? Are you in her camp? About 18 months ago, uh, we took a bit of a survey uh, here at Charlotte Chapel among those who gather with us uh, to find out about our uh, spiritual walk and our prayer life. One of the questions that was asked was, what inhibits your prayers? What inhibits your prayers? Now, no survey is perfect, but of the 120 or so that answered, there was a wide range of answers. Some said there was an issue before coming to pray, if we move on to the next slide. Some felt weighed down by either guilt or shame. Next again, slide, thanks, great. As they came and approached a holy God. Some struggled during prayer, maybe feeling distracted on your own or, or nervous in the presence of others, knowing what to pray. For some, it was after prayer, wondering if, if God had even heard the prayer, a lack of answers, doubting if He was there at all. But the largest group that answered struggled to set aside time to pray in the first place, citing out a lack of discipline or admitting that uh, it was not a high enough priority in their week. Now, do you see yourself on this screen? Well, how do we remedy this frustration that we have in this weakness we have in prayer? What has Jesus taught us about prayer well that's what we're going to look at in Luke chapter 11 so please look back in your Bibles at Luke chapter 11 and first of all we're going to have a look at what we are to pray in Luke 11 Jesus disciples ask him to teach them to pray now we've read in Luke so far if you've been with us in this series of Jesus going off to pray a number of times on his own this is a regular feature of Jesus' behavior, perhaps even daily doing this. And now his followers want to know how they ought to pray. As we have prayed already tonight together, Jesus gives them the, what is now called the Lord's Prayer. And what we've got in Luke 11 is a slightly shorter version of that same prayer from Matthew chapter 6. And what is important is that the model that Jesus uses, maybe not perhaps the specific words, it's not choose one or the other, Luke's 11 or Matthew 6. But Jesus is saying, when you pray, this is to be a regular pattern for the disciples this is not an optional activity, but is expected in their normal walk with God. And the first three lines show us where to start. There is a heaven focus. Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. See, the focus is, is not on ourselves. It is a, it's not an introspective kind of meditation looking for an inner peace. It's not a a sort of a vague spirituality looking out for some sort of place in the universe. It is directed to God regarding his name and his kingdom. It doesn't start with a shopping list. It doesn't even start with how I am feeling. Prayer, Jesus teaches, starts with a reflection on God. Specifically, Jesus teaches us to call him, to call the gods we're praying to, Father. And the word that is used here in Luke 11 is is based on the Aramaic word Abba, not the band, but a very simple word in the Aramaic language for dad, Abba, Abba. My little girl, Lois. That, that if she was brought up Aramaic, that would be probably her first word, Abba. Now this is countercultural today, as it would have been when Jesus first taught this. The Jews had had many prayers that they would offer to God, but Jesus is commanding his followers to relate to him as Abba, a term of incredible intimacy. A tender name. How do you you perceive God? Is he a a harsh judge or a, a cold boss? Well, Jesus is offering something radically different for his followers. A loving, caring father that we get to speak to. And yet, this God and his name is to be hallowed. Now this is an old phrase, Uh, we don't really use it much these days, but it is to hold something sacred, it is set apart from all others. When we consider God, the God of the universe, the one who, who made all and controls all and knows all, we must consider that there is no one like him. That's what we read about in Isaiah No one else who is to be as highly esteemed as him. No one else deserves our worship like he does. Our intimate father, but also due all reverence and respect. This is the God of the universe we are speaking to. And it is this intimate relationship with this incomparable God that provokes the third line. Your kingdom come. A kingdom speaks of both the presence and the rule of the king being realized by his people. Considering the intimacy we have with the Father, considering the might and his power, drives a desire for us to both love him more intimately and for us to obey all that he commands. That's what Jesus is teaching here. There's a desire to grow in love and obedience. And for this to happen both in our hearts and our world, your kingdom come. Jesus has been preaching about the good news of this kingdom. This is the desire to see it come to fruition. So here we see when we repeatedly come to the Lord in prayer, we are to start by reflecting on who He is and our dear relationship we have with Him as His people. We start with a heaven focus. And the second half, the remaining four lines, I think all flow out of what God's kingdom looks like. Jesus teaches us to bring our requests to our Heavenly Father. But I think it's crucial to see that this is a kingdom-minded kind of request. Verse three, give us each day our daily bread, forgive us for our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. What does God's economy look like in the kingdom that he is bringing? Well, there is a a giving of provisions. There is a a releasing of debts. And there is a protection for the weak. Now, the first few lines, that that introduction, were not just there for us to butter God up first, that he needs a few of our um, praises in order for him to answer our prayers. No. Rather, these requests flow out of our satisfaction in Him, in what He provides. They help us set our perspective in view of His kingdom as we consider what truly satisfies us and what we truly need. We can freely ask God to provide for our physical needs. Now, bread was the staple provision in Palestine. Nothing flashy about it. God cares for our physical health, and, and we can ask Him to provide for us. Give us enough food each day, enough water, enough sleep, enough warmth, breath in our lungs, clothes on our back. Father, give us what we need to live today. Now, we're not asking here for, for a three course dinner. For fine dining. It's not for a a bigger house or better clothes. It's just enough. Because our satisfaction is found in God, not possessions, even in security of possessions. Notice this is a a daily request, a daily prayer for daily provisions. It's not a, a weekly stockpile. God, give me enough to last me for the rest of the week. Well, it's just like the Israelites in the Old Testament and Exodus. It's a practice of dependence on God for Him to provide. Our physical needs, but also our, our spiritual needs. Our greatest need to be forgiven of our sins. This has been the good news that Jesus has been teaching about in this kingdom, calling people to repent and seek forgiveness from God. Now, the Greek word that is used here to forgive is release. It is a releasing of something, releasing a debt that is due to God. Now, what we're asking for here in this prayer is is for unmerited grace, that God would pardon us as guilty sinners and the second half of this line shouldn't leave us confused. It's not because we have forgiven others that we deserve to be forgiven. It's not that we earn forgiveness from God. However, the two parts of that line are inextricably linked. When we grasp the forgiveness, the favor that has been extended towards us by God, to have our sins removed from us, we, we cannot help but then extend forgiveness to others. That's the way it operates. Our sins are so much more offensive to God than sins against other people. Now, this is far from easy to live out, to forgive everyone of their sins against us. We can feel justified for holding a grudge against some people, some real hurt against us, It's sometimes just a a coping mechanism to deal with that trauma. But this is not how forgiveness operates in God's kingdom economy. This is something that we need to release. We need to pray about it, Jesus teaches us. If this is something that you're struggling with, not being in good standing with your brother or sister, might I suggest this following pattern in this prayer that we've seen already, to reflect on the holiness of God and the debts that he has written off on your account. It's just a place to start. This is a radical upside-down kingdom that Jesus is talking about and not the way our sinful desires are inclined. We are tempted to to try and earn our moral credit, to want to feel secure by accumulating our possessions. This is why we need to pray the final line, to lead us not into temptation. We want to submit to and obey the rule of God in this kingdom, but we need help in order to do so. We are always, always at risk of slipping off gospel truth and reverting back to our own rule in some form. Whether it is even taking these good instructions from Jesus and turning them into some sort of twisted, works-based instruction that grants us some sort of self-righteousness through prayer or, or in fact, to reject His teaching entirely... And try and live free from it. We need God's protection from sin's corruption. God never tempts us, James 1.13 tells us, but we are to ask that he guards us from attacks of the evil one. So God is the, the provider, the forgiver, and the protector. And Jesus teaches us to ask him for these kingdom minded requests. Now notice how he's, he's framed these requests. It's us, us, us every time. This is to be a repeated prayer, a repeated model of the community of God's people. We are to pray like this together with one another. As a side note, for, for those of us who struggle praying in group settings, if, if you don't know what to pray, then here is a prayer to start with. It is not something for us, a basic prayer for us to move on from. This is a rich prayer that Jesus gives us to pray. There is no shame in using these words that Jesus is giving us himself. But more than that, if prayer is about God's kingdom economy, asking about what we need today, asking for forgiveness as we feel liberated to forgive each and every one of us, That takes the focus off ourselves. I'm less inclined to to worry about what others might think of me if I'm praying together. And the focus is on our collective love and desire for the Father and his kingdom. We pray this as a humble community together. What a beautiful model that Jesus gives us, isn't it? Not only is it a joy to know that God gives us prayer so that we might talk to Him, that He wants us to speak to Him, and He loves to hear our prayers, but God also gives us a model for those prayers. Don't be sitting here thinking that God does not want to hear your concerns or requests. Jesus is simply teaching us that we bring our requests to the living God. In this manner. First reflecting on our status as children of the living God that we might get to call Him Father, reflecting on His holiness and how we can worship Him, desiring to see more of His good rule in our lives and worlds. Now this prayer is not new to most of us and it's not, I think, a lack of knowledge about this prayer that hinders us, that, help, that makes us struggle with prayer. That's not the problem we face. Because I could end the teaching here and give you some good practical models and tips of how you can instruct prayer in your, in your life this week. But ultimately, if it is just that, if it's just task-oriented, then we have missed the purpose of Jesus' prayer for us. This is hollow and unsustainable. It is taking a blessing from Jesus and reducing it to a man-centered religious practice. The heart remains unchanged. Which is why Luke puts uh, the what to pray of verse 1 to 4 with how to pray it in verse 5 to 13. This gets at the, the motivation to pray, the very purpose for it. And Jesus gives us two parables, stories, to teach us that prayer is primarily about dependence, not duty. It's about dependence, not duty. Verse 5 and 11 start the same sort of way. Which of you, suppose you, Jesus is setting two hypothetical stories. Both are going to be, prove to be quite ridiculous. Ridiculous. But Jesus is using these funny little stories to teach us a big truth about God in contrast. Read with me from verse 5. Suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. Now we have to do a bit of cultural work here to understand what's going on. Now just imagine, you're, you're settled down at night, you're in bed, and you get an unexpected knock on the door from an old friend on a journey on foot. It's unexpected, there's no phones in these days. Now this is an, an honor-shame kind of culture that these people are living in. It is the cultural norm to welcome in any guest into your home regardless of who they are, to bring in your Jewish brother or sister and prepare a meal for them to set before them. Now remember, this is 2,000 years ago where fridges aren't a thing and preservatives are hard to come by. You go to your cupboard and you're all out of bread and flour. This is how we know it's an unexpected visit. He would have prepared something had he known he was coming. Nightmare. What are you going to do? To be unable to be a hospitable host is a great mark of shame in that society, not just for the man and his household, but that entire village. To be unwilling to host, to refuse him at the door, is just out of the question entirely. An empty table is not an option, so what do you do? What do you do in the middle of the night for your hungry guest? You can't quickly hop in your car to the 24-hour Asda down the road, You'd go to the market for your daily supplies, but that has been shut for the day. What do you do? Well, you do what you must. The only thing you you can do, out of desperation, you go to your neighbor in the village. Now imagine in that culture being met by this response, verse 7. And suppose the one inside, the neighbor you go to, answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything." Now we might have a look at that with our Western eyes and think, well, fair enough, it is midnight after all. How rude of this guy to knock on a door. But that is not what, how they would react in this culture. No one likes being woken up in the middle of the night. But it is out of duty that you are to care for your friends. That is what you do. The neighbor's response is just ridiculous and embarrassing. David Jackman says that the disciples hearing this would have been rolling around on the floor laughing. It's ridiculous to say, don't go. But Jesus says, imagine your neighbor did think like that. Then verse 8 I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. Not out of friendship, but out of your shameless audacity. Now, this is a particularly tricky verse in the original language for us to translate. The original Greek word used for shameless audacity is this is the only time it is used in the Bible. It originally reads, yet because of his shamelessness, he will get up. And it's not clear who that his is referring to. Is it you coming to your neighbor or is it the neighbor whose shamelessness? Because it would be a shameful thing for him to ignore his neighbor in his hour of needs. The whole village would know about it. Well, I think both apply here. I'm going to be diplomatic and say both. You in the story are willing to do the shameful thing of waking up your neighbor because you are utterly dependent on him to provide in your hour of needs, relying on his provision. You ask, as some translators put it, boldly or persistently, driven by desperate dependence. Dependence. Your neighbor responds knowing you have no one else to turn to, unable to ignore your request. Well, what is Jesus in telling this story? What is he teaching about the Father here? God is not like the sleepy neighbor. We don't need to wake him up with our prayers in the middle of the night. We don't need to drag him out of bed reluctantly. We we don't need to feel guilty or shameful by coming asking for our daily needs and forgiveness. He acts on more than just cultural obligation. He acts to uphold his good and precious promises. Not set by society, but offered freely himself. There is no shame in him at all. He is altogether good. He doesn't gift us things grudgingly. He loves to gift the things he knows we can't provide ourselves. The main teaching I hear from this section is to be bold and persistent in our prayers. That's what it often gets taught from this passage. And these are good things to be bold and persistent. But that in itself can have the risk of being hollow. That we go home encouraged, trying to be more persistent in our prayers, and yet it falls apart. But it is what drives this persistence that is important. It's his shamelessness. It's his utter dependence and helplessness. He knows he cannot provide for his friend alone. He knows that his neighbor is the only hope he has. He knows he is coming to him with empty hands, with nothing to pay him. This is the heart of the attitude that we bring to God in prayer. As much as we try and convince ourselves that we can provide for our own needs, we must admit that we cannot force the grain that goes into our bread to grow. We cannot force the sun to keep shining to bring us warmth, to keep our bodies functioning. These are only out of God's good provision for us. We're dependent on him. The man asks his neighbor for bread in the middle of the night with empty hands. With what do you or what could you pay God for the things he provides you? Nothing. You have no means to pay. You are utterly dependent, none more so than for our forgiveness and cleansing. The key to this lesson is dependence, not persistence. A heart of vulnerable dependence, not duty. The realization of dependence prompts the shameless pleading for our physical and spiritual needs. And when we ask, seek, knock in this manner, God graciously provides according to his good promises. That's what verse 9 and 10 tell us. God is not looking for a certain number of prayers before He's willing to give us what we need. Not according, not only according to His shameless character and promises, but because of our relationship with Him, much more intimate than friends. That's what the second parable is about. In verse thirteen to uh, verse eleven to thirteen, let's read. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you, know, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? We're not just approaching a friendly neighbor, We are approaching him as our heavenly father. That's how the prayer began in verse 2, remember? Not only does God know what we need, not only does he act according to his good promises, he loves us dearly as a father loves his children. Once again, in this example, in verse 11 to 13, children are completely dependent on their parents, on their father. Children have no means to pay for the fish or the egg that they are asking for. And yet, the father or mother gives them good gifts according to their needs. How much more, Jesus says, will God provide good gifts to his dependent children who admit their dependence? and ask him with empty hands. God does not just give us good gifts, he gives the greatest gift. That only he can provide, in verse 13. The Father gives the Holy Spirit. God gives God. God gives himself. In the most intimate of ways. Well, how is this possible? Only because the father first gave his son as a sacrifice for the sins of his children. Jesus and his disciples are on the road to Jerusalem at this point, on the road to his death. The father can only give the spirit, we can only receive the spirit, because Jesus first made a way for God to dwell with man. Looking back at the prayer that Jesus taught us, uh, we can only call God Father because we are adopted children through Christ, John chapter 1. We can only dwell with a hallowed, sacred, holy God because Christ has become our peace, Ephesians 2. The Father's kingdom comes by sending his king, Christ, into the world to conquer over all powers, even death, Colossians 2. He provides our physical needs by the word who sustains all things, Hebrews 1. He forgives our sins by the precious blood of Christ, Hebrews 9. He protects us from the temptation of the evil one who cannot prize us out of his hand. Romans 8. To pray the Lord's Prayer is to pray in utter dependence on the Lord Jesus Christ. The question is, for all of you here tonight, will you ask? If this is new to you, you can know God intimately and have God That by the Holy Spirit dwell in you, you can have all of your true needs met and satisfied? Do you see your helplessness for even breathing in oxygen into your lungs to keep your heart pumping each day? Do you see your need to be set free even more so by your burden of sin? You might never have spoken the Lord's Prayer before tonight, or you you might have said it in church a thousand times and a thousand times at home, but without dependence on God, you pray to, it is empty words, it is empty works, empty religion. Will you ask the Father for His help with empty hands? And if you are indeed children of God here tonight, tell me, Have you grown any less dependent on your Maker and Father since you first turned to Him in dependence? No. Your prayer ought to be the same. Father, help me. Allow the Spirit to remind me of my utter dependence. Do you want to be more disciplined or persistent in your prayers? Pray to God for the Spirit to teach you to be dependent. That's where it starts, and only the Holy Spirit, only the true gospel, can open our eyes to that and remind us of that. Do we want to see revival among our family, our friends, our city, our country, our world? May we pray that the Spirit brings revival in us, first and foremost, that He would sanctify us. that he would purify us to be useful in his hands, that we may pray as Jesus instructed us in Luke 10 verse 2 to ask, the, ask God to send out workers into the world in a way in which only he can provide by transforming us, his church. Let me just invite the band up. And I think it's helpful before we sing our final song together for us to say the Lord's Prayer again together. We've been equipped and nourished by God's Word to approach it again with revived eyes. If you are able, would you please stand with me as we say this together again? And as we say it, let's remind ourselves of the dependence we need on God to do this work in us. Let's say together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. We're going to close by singing Only a Holy God. And I just want to raise the words of the last verse as we sing it. Who else could rescue me from my failing? Who else would offer his only son? Who else invites me to call him father? Only a holy God. Only my holy God. Let's sing together.